0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Kotton, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 Per year, Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash member Use code Feb twenty twenty two at checkout. That's bit.ly slash DSR member and use code FEB twenty twenty two at checkout. Nine twelve ten twenty eight
2: two This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Today, we are joined by two of our regulars, Dr. Corey Schotke of the American Enterprise Institute, who is in, at least briefly, Washington, D.C. How are you today, Corey?
0: I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. That
2: is fantastic. I was counting on that. And also, David Sanger of the New York Times. David, you look like you're in Washington, too.
3: I I am, but I'm only
2: here because Corey's here. Otherwise, I I wouldn't show up. Well, yeah, it's not the same city without her. <laughs> yeah. That's for certain. And I'm just guessing, but I, I, I might be wrong about this. Uh, our guest for this week is Ambassador William Taylor, former US ambassador to Ukraine, served in senior diplomatic posts across the world for the State Department. How are you today, Bill? Thank you, sir. Doing fine.
4: And, and you're can I add
0: to the in- introduction of him that he's one of my idols? When I think of the tradecraft of American diplomacy at its zenith, I think of the good and great Bill Taylor.
4: Corey, that is much too kind, much too kind.
2: Well, she's not alone. She's not alone, Bill. In any event, uh, as you may have guessed, folks, we're going to talk a little bit more about Ukraine, where there have been some developments and uh, there may be more developments to come. Of course, yesterday, the president of the United States met in the White House with the new chancellor of Germany. And Francis, President Macron, spent five hours with Vladimir Putin. He then went on to meet with President Zelensky in Kiev. I think the place to begin is with those meetings and their significance and what they tell you about where we are in all of this. And I'll go around the group and I'll start first with you, Bill.
4: David, thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. It's, great. it's an honor to be here with both Corey and, and the other David. Thanks for having me. Yeah, a lot of diplomacy and diplomacy is better than, than war. And there seems to be a lot of conversations. The, the number of, of people, foreign ministers, presidents, prime ministers going through Kiev is dramatic, is amazing. And the number of phone calls that President Biden and, and Secretary Blinken and, and all the cabinet and Jake Sullivan and the whole crew are placing to their counterparts around the world, not just in Europe, but around the world, is also, in my experience, unprecedented. Other people will be able to say if, uh, if they've seen this before. But this is, is amazing. And you're right to point out, David, that now we have the the new chancellor uh, here in Washington. Good discussion. He came as close as he possibly could to agreeing to shut down this uh, infamous uh, gas pipeline from uh, Russia to to Germany, if the if the Russians decide, if Putin decides to go across that border. President Biden was very clear, was explicit about that. And uh, and Chancellor Schultz said, uh, I'm with him, said, uh, whatever he said, uh, we're in lockstep. So I I take that as as a positive thing. Then we have President Macron uh, in Moscow, as you say, for five hours. And the 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 photo was just wonderful. Everybody probably saw that photo. It looked like a boat. It was was incredible. One at the one end at the at the bow of the boat, the other at the stern of the boat. They had to yell across the across the table, but they apparently had you know some talks. And uh, McCarl then goes on to talk to Zelensky today. I don't know what what either what either conversation in Moscow or in Kiev uh, took place, but I am pretty sure the President Zelensky is standing tough. He is not blinking. He is not giving up on the principle uh, that Ukraine is sovereign to President Biden's credit. He's also sticking to the principle that Ukraine is sovereign, gets to make its own decisions, and that all this saber rattling is more than a bluff, David. I mean, you know, bluff talks about, you know, you got deuces, but no, he's got aces. I mean, he's, he's got a lot of military around there, which Corey can talk about better than I but he's rattling the saber to switch metaphors. And he's trying to get Zelensky to blink, to cave, to be intimidating. And same probably with Biden. And so far, neither Biden nor Zelensky have caved.
2: And that seems to be the truth. You're right about the size of that table. I saw one wag on the Internet say that they weren't sure that there was much difference between Macron and Putin zooming each other and speaking at opposite sides of that table. But Corey, also, I you know, Bill is right to point out that Chancellor Schultz uh, said, um, "I'm with him on Nord Stream," but the president really didn't leave him a lot of room. Did he? he said, "If they come across the border one way or another, we're shutting Nord Stream two down." So you know, it seemed he needed a forceful message there, and if he wasn't going to get it from the Germans, he was going to give it himself. What did you think of the meetings?
0: It was noticeable that that President Biden said twice that Nord Stream would not proceed if Russia invaded Ukraine. And Schultz was asked directly a couple of times, and he didn't say that one sentence, but I do think President Biden effectively trapped him and assisted the very strong position taken by other members of Chancellor Schultz's coalition, in particular, the foreign minister and her Green Party which has been outstanding on that. I felt badly for President Macron. So I actually don't think it's unhelpful that he is unhelpfully trying to have an independent French diplomacy on this. Firstly, because exactly as Ambassador Taylor said, the more paths of potential conversation we have the more we may understand about what Russia is trying to do, and the more we can foreclose the dangerous options and see if there's anything constructive that they want that we can get with them. I feel about French diplomacy the way I feel about the French and British nuclear deterrence, which is creating other areas of decision-making actually is useful. It complicates the decision-making of our adversaries and given how weak president biden has been about the use of military force as an integral part of american policy you know the french have been strong and solid in nato on rejecting russian uses of force so i think the biden administration is right not to say anything about what france is doing and just let them do it not undercut it, but also not endorse it, because then it starts a great big conversation about France's political agenda. Two things I wish the administration was doing that they're not, although I agree with Bill that the administration is doing really well on Ukraine and much better than it has done on every other foreign policy issue. The two things I wish they were doing. I wish the president hadn't taken... The use of milita- American military force in Ukraine off the table. I think we shouldn't, you know, the Russians are doing everything they can to be threatening, and we are doing everything we can to make sure they don't feel threatened. And I actually don't think that's the right equation. Moreover, I think the president missed an opportunity to explain to my mom and the rest of the American public why they should care about Ukraine. What I think the president should have said is. The United States does have military forces in Ukraine. We have about 200 Florida National Guardsmen who are there helping train the Ukrainians to be able to defend their territory. That's a good thing for us to do. And it's what helps make the international order stable and the norm that countries boundaries should only change by negotiation, not by threat or use of force. That has kept Europe safe and stable for 75 years. And it's a good thing that we're doing it. If Russia feels threatened by 200 Florida National Guardsmen, imagine how threatened they'll be when they see the rest of the American military. The second thing I wish the president were doing. You're up to the third. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I thought that was only one. <laughs> oh, um, I see. So the other thing I wish the president was doing was talking up the capabilities of America's European allies. You know, we trash talk our allies about the amount they spend on defense. But if I were betting my money, I would bet. In favor of the Polish military being able to defeat the Russians in a conventional war, the Polish commanded a division of 17 countries in Iraq, and they did it terrifically probably better than the United States would have done it. What they asked us for, for deploying to Iraq was to help them build a non-commissioned officer academy to strengthen the war fighting ability of their forces. And they've done it great. And we should be saying that, we shouldn't be saying, you know, the United States needs to deploy to Europe. We should be saying, actually European militaries are terrific at this. They're already in Europe. We're reinforcing to support them. And all of us together can defend our territories.
2: OK, David, what do you think?
3: Well, first, to Bill's point about Nord Stream 2, I do think that Biden did this right. I, uh, and I agree uh, with Corey that he he um, sort of trapped the chancellor in this regard. But I also thought it was notable that Chancellor Schultz never managed to utter the words Nord Stream 2 in response to the questions about Nord Stream 2. And I found that a little bit worrisome because while the messaging was good with the rest of the allies, we're with you, whatever you do, I think he needed to send a message to his own populace that basically said, look, this has been a major economic project for us. It's important to all Germans." It's important for our future, but some things are more important. And if necessary, we will give it up. We don't want to give it up. But if necessary, we will separate ourselves from it. I thought that President Biden did, by and large, a really good, forceful job. There was one thing he did that kind of just stuck in my mind that worried me a little bit. He defined an invasion as sending troops or tanks across the border. A week after he had sent his deputy national security advisor for cyber and uh, emerging technologies, Ann Neuberger, to talk to NATO about how they would all respond together if what Putin does is not send troops or tanks, but instead brings down the power grid, brings down communications grids, repeats the NotPetya attack on Ukraine from a few years ago, which pretty well crippled the country. I happened to be in Ukraine at the time that that was playing out. Sure, that was just a coincidence. It was completely coincidental, but it was, you know, made for an interesting moment. And so I was actually traveling there with Rex Tillerson, then Secretary of State. When was the last time Rex Tillerson was discussed on Deep State Radio, David?
2: We didn't even discuss him when he was secretary.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The concern I have is that if Putin is looking for a pathway out, and he may well be by now, and that would not be a bad thing. And he decides that he really doesn't want to trigger the sanctions, but does want to divide the allies. He's going to reach for any of the variety of things he can do and has done so well to try to destabilize the government, short of sending the troops in. A coup, a cyber attack, the the list is long. And then have those troops there as sort of the backup, so we won't know whether the cyber attack was his one and done, or was the opening to sending in a kinetic force. While I'm very impressed with how Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, and the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, and others have planned out for almost every contingency here. I'm not sure the allies have quite figured out how they respond and respond together for something that is short of the massive invasion. We'll know the answer to this relatively quickly. We ran a piece uh, in the Sunday paper with my colleague, Helene Cooper, where we looked at Putin's options. And I have to say what struck me about the briefings that the administration gave to Congress last Thursday is that they leaned much more heavily toward we're headed to a full invasion of the country rather than just a piece of it or one of these other options. I don't know if that was to get their attention or it's because the assessments have turned more dire, but it was notable that that's what they said.
2: So Bill, a couple of uh, critiques here. I'm going to table the one that Corey mentioned in the middle, the second of her two critiques. That was her third, um, you know, something like that. But in any event, I'm going to table the one about how do you make the case to America? Because I want to come back to that as kind of a, a segment that we'll do after the break. But Corey had a, had a critique about our statements about our own use of force. And that they should be stronger, David, about preparing for these other eventualities. I was wondering what you thought of those critiques.
4: On the military side, on the steps that the Biden administration has taken, I think over the past about two weeks, maybe three weeks now, we've seen a shift. Before that time, the line was, the policy was, the threat was if you invade, then. This is what's going to happen. Sanctions will reinforce the NATO allies. uh, We will accelerate our our support for uh, Ukrainian armed forces. And that seems to have shifted uh, about, as I say, three, two and a half weeks ago to a more active deterrence. And by that, I mean, you see troops moving, you see U.S. forces leaving Fort Bragg. So uh, my first unit, David, was the 82nd Airborne. And my second unit was the 101st Airborne. And my third unit was the 3rd Armored Cavalry Regiment in in Germany. All three of those organizations, of those entities, of those units are moving in the direction of Eastern Europe. And that's an active phase. That's not waiting for the first tank or or troop to go across the the border. That's a demonstration that we're serious uh, about this. And the volume and the publicity given. To the volume of weapons and ammunition going into Kiev airport, you know, going into the Borsfield with uh Chargé, uh Christina Kvind standing there in front of all this, all these pallets of, of uh, ammunition being unloaded from U.S. Air Force airplanes. That's much more active. That's a signal. That's a signal to a lot of people Signal to the Ukrainians in the first instance. But it's also a signal, of course, to President Putin. The idea has to be to deter this guy. The idea has to be to make it clear that the cost to him of Russian soldiers blood, not to mention the number of of Ukrainians, military and civilian that came out over the weekend. As you say, you were talking about tens of thousands of people dying. The cost in in terms of blood, the cost in terms of of his treasure I mean, the, the, the effect of, uh, the I'm, I'm very impressed, actually, with the thought being given to the kind of sanctions that could really cost the Russian. Sadly, it's going to cost the Russian people. It's going to go, it's going to have serious effects, in particular, if they sanction these top three banks, top three Russian banks. That's as good as SWIFT, but kicking them out of SWIFT. That, that will have an enormous immediate effect. And a longer term effect is this, this export ban, the microchips that'll gradually squeeze them not to mention the specific sanctions on individuals right around president putin and even on president putin president biden said he would sanction president putin and going back to the blood it seems to me david that's that, that's a war crime we ought to be thinking about that kind of disproportionate attack, unprovoked disproportionate attack on a nation that is doing nothing other than trying to secure its own security, trying to ensure its own security. And what? This is going to kill tens of thousands? This is a war crime. Uh, It it At least ought to be considered. Now, we are not a member of the ICC, but the Ukrainians have signed up. And and I think we ought to be thinking about that. The the last thing that I think, David, that he's got to worry about, Putin's got to worry about is this is not a popular war. This is not a popular step. The Russian people are not going to support this. The Russian people have, by and large, a good attitude towards the Ukrainians. They think the Ukrainians are kind of their brothers. And they used to be. Ukrainians used to have that view, too. When I was there the first time, 2006, 2009, Ukrainians, you know, most of them thought, well, yeah, the Russians may not want to go there, but they're at least brotherly and we can trade with them and that kind of business. No longer. So when I was there in 2019, after the invasion in 2014, the Russians have created an enemy on their on the border. And the Russian people don't support an attack on this. We saw, I don't know if you noticed, but there was a three-star general, retired three-star general, uh, Ishikov, who put, and this is a pretty hardliner guy. He's harder liner than Corey. And he was saying, Mr. Putin, do not invade. This is a mistake. Do not invade. And he even said, this could destabilize your regime. Now, that's got to get to President Putin.
2: Excellent point and a perfect transition because I was going to turn to Corey and I was going to say, what did you think of the statement by General Ishikov?"
0: If I were Putin, I would be really nervous about that. I would also be really nervous about the public letter that a few hundred Russian notable intellectual figures signed. It takes an enormous amount of courage to do that kind of thing in a society as repressive as Putin has made Russia. And that should send a signal of potential brittleness of his control of the country. The sanctions I am most cheering are sanctions of transparency. And they are the ones, they are the only thing that Putin has had a response to of the mooted sanctions because it forces him into accountability with his own public. And those two uh, statements by Russians themselves may suggest that Putin's in for trouble at home that he might not have anticipated. So I think Ambassador Taylor's point about Putin being the father of Ukrainian nationalism is really true. And he may also be being the father of a resurgent democracy movement in Russia.
2: Yeah, and certainly something to watch because the pressure we can put on him might pale compared to the pressure he could feel domestically. And in fact, he has often done these kind of near abroad adventures to shore up his lousy domestic performance economically and so forth. If this has the opposite effect, of course, it will prove to be the third miscalculation of Putin, because he's miscalculated about the US ability to respond and NATO's ability to respond as well. David, you made a point, and I want to follow up on it very briefly. Uh, You you talked about you weren't sure that the allies were prepared to respond to, for example, cyber response. And yet you also said that uh, Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger, who's the cyber lead in the NSC, former NSA, was over there and meeting with them. And clearly, that's what they were discussing. So how do you balance those the, your observation and the fact of her visit?
3: Oh, she was sent explicitly to go figure out what the common responses would be. So NATO, you know, was created in the nuclear age or just before the nuclear age. It knows and has got protocols for exactly how it will respond to a nuclear challenge from Russia. Before that, the Soviet Union. They keep nuclear weapons not far from headquarters in Brussels and all around Europe. They've practiced this now for 70 years. They know what they're doing. When it comes to cyber, NATO has no offensive capability of its own an uncertain protocol about how it would allocate to different countries doing an offensive cyber response. Its defenses are all around how to protect NATO's own networks, but not how to protect NATO nations. And of course, here, we're dealing with an initial attack that would be on a non-NATO nation. So it's not surprising that they don't really have their act together on this. Uh, my understanding of her trip is that she was there to develop a common response if, if Ukraine's attacked, if the rest of NATO is attacked, if you see a return to a not-petya kind of attack, which was the most expensive cyber attack in, in history. And of course, what to do if this reaches out to the United States, which is the one place where Putin knows he could reach into the U.S. without necessarily escalating
2: into something much worse. It sounds like echoes of the Maginot line, prepared uh, for the last war, not for the next one necessarily. Um, you
3: know, the other day, David, I opened up the Times. It was a day that we reported on Newberger's trip, and we had a story about trench warfare, people right, in Ukraine right. digging trenches we had a story about the diplomacy and we had a story about the cyber threat. And I thought that's what makes Ukraine such a really fascinating problem because it's 1918, 1956 and 2022 all rolled together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That's an excellent point. So we're going to take a little bit of a break right now. We always take a little bit of a break right now so that uh, those of you who are joining us for free for the public feed of this thing, we can say goodbye to and encourage you to go and join and become members. People are joining and becoming members at, uh, at record rates. We're very happy about that. And we think that's in part because people want to hear the last third of the show and uh, get some of the other benefits of being a member. So if you're listening to the public feed and you don't want to be cut out of these discussions, go to the dsrnetwork.com and and click on membership. It's it's I think it's $5 a month. It's quite reasonable. And you can help support everything we're doing and, and hear everything we're doing. So hope you'll do that. For the rest of you who are our members, uh, sit tight. We'll be back in one moment.